You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. I've entitled my sermon today, A Fox in the Hen House. And I'm, I'm kind of proud about that title, actually. Uh, normally my titles are pretty boring. But the reason I picked this is because this, I think, is an accurate description of what was taking place in the churches of Galatia. After Paul planted these churches, other teachers had come in, and they were teaching a different gospel. They called themselves Christians. They pretended to be, and maybe they thought that they were even Christians. But they had changed the message of the good news. And when the When the apostle heard what was going on, he wrote this letter of Galatians, and his purpose was to elevate the true gospel, to defend the believers, and to drive away the foxes who were getting loose in the hen house. From the very beginning, Paul wrote this letter with an intensity that's unmatched in his other epistles. This is the most sober, serious beginning he has, and he starts right from the beginning. He skips some of the items he normally does. There's no prayer for the Galatian believers. There's no expression of thanksgiving. I thank God for you and and so on and so forth. He gets straight to the heart of the issue because the Galatians were in such spiritual danger. He doesn't wait around. He gets right to the issue at hand. And what was the issue? Well, verses 6 and 7 says that they were in the process of turning to a different gospel which is not another. And so Paul's main point in this section is crystal clear. A different gospel is no gospel at all. What they were teaching may be called a gospel, and they may be celebrating it as a gospel, but it's not a gospel. It's not good news. It's not faithful to the message of Christ. Any teaching that alters the gospel slightly changes it entirely. That's what he says here. False gospels do exist. They they do destroy people. And this passage warns us to beware of abandoning the true gospel for something else. And, And frankly, I think we need this message just as much as the Galatians did in their day. Error has not diminished in our day. In fact, I think we could argue that it's multiplied. With the advent of technology, all you need is a smartphone and and an internet connection, and your ideas and your opinions can be propagated all over the world. You can pull up in your home teaching from different religions and different people. We need to remain faithful to the truth of the gospel. And no matter how well-intentioned a teacher is, no matter how good-sounding they are, if they don't preach what Paul has laid out here, if they don't preach the true gospel, we must reject it. We have to set it aside. Don't listen to them. Hold fast to the truth. That's sobering. That's weighty. And this is what Paul calls us to do. Now, most of our time today is going to be spent in verses 6 through 10, but to fully understand the situation and why he says what he does, we need to start from the top. Because if you don't get the background, if you don't get the introduction to this book, it's like dropping in the middle of a movie halfway through. You don't know who the characters are. You don't know the setting. You don't know why things are going the way they are. You don't know why those people are fighting or those people are on the same team. So let's start from the top. Let's look at the letter's background in verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle... Not from men, 
nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these opening verses, Paul sets the tone for the entire letter. In fact, we can see the danger of, the gospel, of a different gospel revealed in Paul's intensity here. Normally, he says something about, I, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and a servant of God. I'm thankful for you believers. But he starts almost with his dukes up. I'm an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through God. What's he doing here? Well, he's sharing his apostolic credentials to defend the gospel that he preached. He's been commissioned to preach, and his commission didn't come from a group of people. It came from Jesus himself. What he preaches is what Jesus told him to preach. That's why he says, not from men nor through men. He didn't receive this commission from a human source. Instead, his apostleship comes through Jesus Christ, from God the Father. And this matter of of authority is going to be a huge deal in the book of Galatians. He's foreshadowing what he's going to do in chapters 1 and 2. Because if his opponents can prove that his gospel is just made up or from other people, they can discard it. But if his gospel that Paul preached is from the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to submit to it. So this matter of apostolic authority is going to come back in chapters 1 and 2. Now he says in verse 2 that there are other brethren with me. And he's probably writing from Antioch. I'm going to put a map on the screen here in a moment. This was his home church, his missionary base that he, he was sent from and came back to after his journeys. He's probably writing from Antioch. And when he says that there are other believers with him, he is signaling to these opponents that he's not a rogue agent. He's not out there by himself. He is in alignment and in agreement with the church. So what they're teaching is actually what is out of joint. What he writes is confirmed by other believers. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. So where is Galatia? This uh, is a map of modern-day Turkey. And at the bottom right corner, you can see Syria, and then there's Antioch down there. And apparently my laser pointer doesn't work that far. Antioch down at the bottom right quadrant, if you can see it. And Galatia is really in the middle. It's one of the the tan-looking provinces. It's got red words, Galatia. And the difficulty in in knowing which part of Galatia he was writing to is there's a debate going on amongst scholars, as there often is. And there's two really sections of Galatia. There's northern Galatia, which was really settled by ethnic Gauls. They moved in from Europe in the century before Christ. They settled in that northern part of, the, of, of the, the province. Southern Galatia was more Roman in orientation. It was more settled and part of the Roman Empire. So which did Paul write to? And there's a big debate. And it affects the date of writing. But to summarize it for you, to make it simple, Paul is writing to southern Galatia, I believe. And why is that important? Well, because Paul planted these churches on his first missionary journey. His first missionary journey went into this area, into Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. He was stoned in these cities, and he went back through. Uh, Timothy is from these cities. And so he's writing back to the churches he's just planted. So here's the situation. Give you a little bit of a timeline. Paul has traveled through this region of southern Galatia on his first missionary journey. He's planted churches. He's experienced persecution. And 
Acts 14, 28, at the end of Acts 14, it says that he landed back in Antioch and he stayed a long time with the disciples. And while he was there teaching and being part of that local church, he gets news that a false teaching was spreading in Galatia, the region he was just in. He has a relationship with these people. He's met them. He's discipled them personally. He's evangelized them. And so quickly, they are turning away from the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul says in verse 6, I marvel, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning away from the gospel. Because he had just been there months, maybe a couple of years at the latest, before. So around A.D. 48 to 49, Paul writes Galatians, and this is the first of his inspired epistles. And there's some disagreement about when in the book of Acts along the timeline when Paul would have written this. I think that he wrote before the the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. I'm going to talk more about that tonight. So he's writing this letter, but dealing with the same question that Acts 15 deals with. Do Do Gentile Christians need to keep the law to be saved? And what Paul is doing in Galatians is really laying out his theology. And he's showing them with an emphatic no that they don't need to keep the law to be saved. So Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, and then verse 3, he gives a very simple standard greeting, grace and peace to you. And this idea of grace comes up over and over again. We're going to see it later in the text. It's a very important idea in Galatians. So we'll return to it as we go along. But Paul quickly moves on now. He's introduced himself, he's introduced his audience And the best way to correct error is to lay out the truth, right? And that's exactly what Paul does next. He proclaims the power of the true gospel. We see this in verses 4 and 5. He proclaims the power of the true gospel. And this is what we we preached last week before the Lord's table. So I I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want to make sure that we understand this. Because the gospel is the good news. The Greek word euangelion means good news. So whatever the gospel is, It's full of hope and joy. So what is the good news? We built this definition last week studying the text. The true gospel is the good news that according to God's will and for God's glory, Jesus died and rose again in our place to forgive our sins and deliver us from the present evil age we live in. Now that's a long definition, but it comes straight from the text. The gospel was founded first on historical events. That's Jesus died and rose again. He went to a Roman cross. He was hanged on that cross by nails. He was crucified. He died. The God-man who has always lived as the second member of the Trinity, who always will be, took on a human body and lived perfectly and died. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day. And he appeared to many. And he taught them that salvation is in his name and in his name alone. So the gospel is based on historical events. Well, what did Jesus do on that cross? That's the last part. He died in our place to forgive our sins. That's the explanation of the gospel. Jesus died in our place because sin has consequences. And every person has sinned. We've seen that in our reading in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what's amazing in that context, Romans 3.23, is that Paul isn't just saying that all have sinned and it's hopeless. He's saying that there is a solution for sin. And if you're a sinner, then the solution is for you. 
And, and all people have sinned, therefore, the solution is for all people. That's the good news. That, that instead, of, instead of you and I as sinners standing under the wrath of God, getting the just rewards for our rebellion against him, Jesus said, I'll take their place. I'll die for them. And there's a, there's a dual exchange that takes place. It goes two directions. Jesus took on our sinfulness. He took our penalty. We're going to see that in Galatians 3. He bore the penalty for our sin. But he also exchanged his righteousness. And he gave that to us. That those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be forgiven of their sins. And they are justified. They are declared right with God. And he's the only way to do this. Now what Paul mentions next may be a little surprising. Jesus died for the purpose of delivering us from the present evil age that we live in. To deliver us. And and what he's teaching here is that that there's an already not yet principle taking place. We are headed, for those of us who've trusted in Christ, we are headed toward a perfect home. We are headed for a future with God and with our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet. So we're already part of a new creation, but it's not yet happened. And so Paul shows us that this this present world with its sin and destruction and death is under the the, the influence of the devil, 1 John 5, 19. He's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But what Jesus has done is that he has invaded this territory and reclaimed it through his death and resurrection. And he takes all those who follow him and leads them into glory. He died to deliver us from the present evil age. Well, why did he do that? The reason he did that was because it was the will of the Father. Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, embraced the Father's plan, yielded himself to it, and fulfilled it perfectly. And the result is that God receives all the glory. God receives the glory for it. This is the saving gospel. This is the thing that the the Galatians... (laughs) Not the Colossians. We talked about them last year. The Galatians, maybe they did wear galoshes. This was the thing that the Galatians were abandoning. This is what they were turning away from. And before we move on to see how they were turning away from it, this is the message of hope. This is the good news. That if you're a sinner, and you are, This is the message that you have to believe and trust in to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, to have the hope of eternal life. And and it's not a therapeutic idea. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's not a prosperity idea. It's, It's not this just feel good and you'll be okay. It is you repent of your sin and you trust Christ as Savior. Sin has condemned you. Jesus forgives you. Sin dominates you. Jesus frees you. And when we fly to our Savior, he rescues us. If you've never trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. Yield to him. Today is the day of salvation, he says. And what's sad is that the Galatians were abandoning this. And yet we, we sometimes abandon this too. And so as we look at verses 6 through 10, and as Paul exposes the destructive nature of the gospel. We can't just allow our minds to say, well, that was what happened back there. We don't have any of those temptations here. The warning for them still applies to us. 
And Paul exposes this false gospel with strong, even combative language. It's as harsh as he gets in verses 8 and 9. And he begins by marveling. He's astonished that they've so quickly deserted the grace of Christ. And, And when we come to a warning text like this, we have to wrestle with it. And yet, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is hope and comfort. Allow this text to keep you on the straight and narrow. Allow this text to strengthen your walk with the Lord. The Galatians were troubled, verse 7 says. They were troubled by these false teachers. Well, who were these people anyway? Who were these false teachers? Uh, the, the book of Galatians never says this is who they are. So, so what several commentators have talked about is mirror reading. It's like you're looking in a mirror and trying to figure out what's going on, on the other, in the other area. Because we don't have a clear view of it. But from what the, the letter says, these teachers were talking about circumcision, chapter 6. They were emphasizing circumcision. Chapters 3 and 4, they were talking about obedience to the Old Testament law. It seems that they had a Jewish background. And the most likely explanation is that they were Jewish Christians, perhaps from Jerusalem, who came and were teaching that Paul's gospel was incomplete. That he was saying, you just need to trust in Christ to be delivered from your sins. But that's not it, actually. By the way, when you sign up for that, you have to do these things too. You have to obey the Old Testament law and submit again to that yoke. And what Paul is going to show is that line of thinking moves backwards in salvation history. It's totally wrong for those of us who are in Christ Jesus to look to the law to save Because the law was powerless to do that. And Paul is going to systematically work through their teaching and lay out the gospel in chapters 2 through 4. But before he gets there, here in these verses, he's showing us the destructive and devastating effects of changing the gospel. Why is a different gospel such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Well, there are four reasons that he shows us. Verse 6 gives us the first one. A false gospel abandons the grace of Christ. And if you look at your English Bibles, the New King James says, turning away is the verb that's used. And that doesn't carry the gravity of the Greek word here. The the word means to change allegiances or to desert. It was used of Jewish people who apostatized their faith in the Maccabean Revolution. Well, what are the Galatians deserting? They're deserting the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the grace of Christ. And this idea of grace is very, very important. It it referred to giving a favor or gift to someone who was undeserving. Paul equates grace and gospel in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 he says the grace of Christ, but in verse 7 he says the gospel of Christ. It's one and the same. The gospel is the expression of God's grace because it's Jesus' death and resurrection that the gift of salvation is now offered to, to sinners who are completely undeserving. That's why it's of grace. To turn away from the gospel then, to turn away from what Paul has laid out, is to turn away from grace to something else, which means that, that we're trying to earn favor with God. Every false gospel includes some human contribution to gaining or keeping favor with God. Every time. Every false gospel 
includes some human way that we contribute to gaining initially favor with God or keeping favor with God as we go along. And I want to encourage us here to acknowledge the bent of our own sinful hearts to wander away from grace. The hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Our hearts, even after coming to faith in Christ, are tempted to do and to look to what our our works can accomplish to be right with God. Let's think about this for a moment because I don't want us to walk away confused. This can happen in a couple of different ways. It can happen first in our initial approach to salvation as we try to gain favor with God apart from Jesus and his work. And this is a problem for unbelievers Because believers, by definition, have rejected their works and accepted the gift of salvation. Galatians was written for people who think they need to add personal work or righteousness to gain salvation. There is nothing you can do. There is no amount of work that you can bring to the table that God will say, ah, you've met my quota. His quota is perfection. World religions teach a different way of gaining favor with God. But the common denominator always comes back to this. Earning God's favor rests on the worshiper. Whether that's through sacrifices, through confession, through doing five pillars, through following the path of enlightenment, every world religion comes back to this common denominator of earning God's favor through what you do. And we as believers, born again believers, reject those teachings because they're incompatible with God's grace. If we contribute anything at all, even the smallest thing, we have taken grace out of the gospel and changed salvation to be dependent on our works. And that's not salvation at all. But there's a second way that this bent away from God's grace shows up. And it's, it's for believers. It's easy for us in our ongoing practice of sanctification to think that we have to perform to earn God and keep God's favor. What do I mean by that? This is a far more subtle thing. And Galatians was written for anyone who equates spiritual growth with doing. That once I'm in, quote unquote, then I've got to work to make God continue to accept me and like me. That is so common for us to think. Our hearts are naturally tempted to that, and it's so wrong. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish? Although you've begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? The gospel of grace is grace from start to finish, from beginning to end, and everywhere in between. And so the danger here is believing that rightful duties of the Christian life directly correlate with God's attitude toward you. That if, that if I wake up on time and I read my Bible and I, and I don't get upset while I'm driving to work and I don't have road rage and I'm nice to my coworkers and I, I pray a little bit extra over my lunch break and I'm nice to my wife and kids when I come home and I do what's right and I just cross all the, the right T's and dot the right I's and check the boxes, then God must love me more. That's wrong. Because if God would love you more based on what you've done, then it's not grace, it's works. God loves you immensely, perfectly, completely. 
Does God expect us to obey him? Yes. But does our obedience determine whether or not he views us with favor? Praise God, no. Because if God's attitude toward me, even after salvation, was dependent on how well I obeyed, he wouldn't like me very much. But praise God, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If you have to keep doing to stay within God's good graces, the gospel of grace has been replaced by self-effort and spiritual labor. Galatians is going to help us understand the proper relationship between works and grace. It's going to help us keep a grace-filled view of our Christian obedience. And I'll give you a preview. It's all about the Spirit of God. Galatians 5 is all about living according to the Spirit. A false gospel moves us away from the grace of Christ. But second, in verse 7, a false gospel perverts the true gospel. And this is where we draw the main point of today's sermon from. The Galatians have turned to a different gospel, which is not another. A different gospel is no gospel at all. But what does a different gospel do? Verse 7 says that it perverts the gospel of Christ. The word pervert means to alter from the original course, to twist or to distort False teachings pervert the truth. They twist it, even though they call themselves by the same name. And that's the hard thing to recognize. What you are left with is not a gospel at all, but something of a totally different nature, calling itself the gospel. Now, I I have a somewhat humorous illustration here to try to prove this, so hang with me through it. How many of you prefer almond milk or, or, or oat milk to regular milk? Okay. I, I don't have a dog in this fight, okay? I, frankly, I prefer whole milk. That's just me, okay? But there's a debate going on right now with the Dairy Farmers Association of America petitioning Congress to make a law that oat milk and almond milk would not be called milk. And here's their reasoning. I jotted down several quotes. Their reasoning is that they want to restrict the word milk to refer only to animal products. Drinks that don't come from a lactating animal, they say, can't be called milk. Uh, Representative Mike Simpson of Idaho uh, is really the one leading the charge. He's even walked around grocery stores placing this-is-not-milk sticky cartons, sticky notes on cartons of plant-based drinks. Uh, A former FDA commissioner once said, and all... An almond doesn't lactate. Uh, And a New York Times article from a few years ago cuts through the cream and gets right down to the bottom of the pail with this opening line. If milk comes from a plant, can you still call it milk? And it's not my problem to, I I don't, again, I don't have a beef with it. I don't have a beef with milk. (laughs) Frankly, almond juice or oat drink just doesn't have the same ring. But, But what that does is it illustrates the issue here. If the gospel doesn't teach salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ, can it really be called the good news? It can't. It's something totally different. Even a small shift in the gospel can be seismic. A a change in a singular molecule from carbon dioxide to carbon monoxide is not good for humans. Going from something harmless that we exhale to something deadly if we breathe it in. 
a change in one part of the gospel is disastrous for sinners. And, and, and when an adjective is placed in front of the word gospel other than true, the truth has been twisted. Let me give you a couple of examples. The prosperity gospel. So we're describing the type of gospel this is. And this is the belief that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you simply give enough money to this evangelist or you pray this certain prayer over and over again day after day, God is going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And the blessing always seems to be something of value in this life. Money, fame, influence, success, uh, additional houses or travel, this gospel, quote-unquote, is a perversion of the scriptures. It has deceived millions of people around the world. Jesus didn't die for you to have a little bit more money so you could be more comfortable. Jesus died to deliver you from this present evil age and to offer you eternal life. That's why Jesus died. We are new creatures and our values are now heavenly in orientation, not earthly. I'll give you a second example. It's known as the therapeutic gospel. And this, as David Powlison, a, a counselor who writes, he says that the therapeutic gospel is that Jesus and the church exist to make you feel loved and significant and validated and entertained and charged up. Well, should the church include you and make you feel loved? Does Jesus love you? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the shift has taken place that the most important thing here is that Jesus exists to give you fulfillment and completion. He will increase your self-esteem. You don't need to change. He affirms you unconditionally. He'll take you on an adventure you'll never forget. That's the therapeutic gospel. And that's very popular in middle-class America. And it's a perversion of the true gospel of grace. Jesus is not your therapist. He is your God and your Lord and your Savior, and he rescues you from the power and the penalty of sin. And he will change you to become more and more like him, which is the purpose for which you were created. The true gospel doesn't need a descriptor in front of it. It's simply the gospel of Jesus. And this shows us the need for discernment. We took a whole message last year in the middle of our study of Colossians, to unpack this idea of discernment, the ability to know the truth well enough to spot error and reject it. And discernment is more important than ever. Technology has given error superpowers. As long as you have a smartphone and an internet connection, as I said before, you can put your opinions out there. You can, you can imbibe anything that goes on in the world. Discernment means we know the truth well enough to spot and reject error. That's just one reason among many of why we rehearse and refresh ourselves in the true gospel over and over again. There's a third reason why a different gospel is such a big deal. Third, a false gospel leads to damnation. You say, whoa, whoa that's a harsh word. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 contain some of the strongest condemnations in the entire Bible. The same basic idea is repeated twice, just to make sure we get it. Verse 8, if anyone preaches a different gospel than what Paul has already preached, that person is to be accursed. 
if Paul or one of his coworkers came back and they changed what they were preaching, don't listen to it. Even if an angel from heaven showed up and said he was from God and he changed the gospel message, Paul writes, don't believe him. Verse nine, if anyone comes to them to preach something other than what they've already received, reject it. Don't give it the time of day. Don't listen to it. And both verses have the same conclusion. Those who preach a different gospel are accursed. It's the Greek word anathema, meaning to place under God's curse. And there's an Old Testament story that helps us understand what this word means. When the children of Israel were entering the promised land, the first city that they faced was the city of Jericho. And God gave them some unusual instructions. It was not a normal battle plan. But the battle plan wasn't the only thing unusual. God also said that everything in the city was devoted to destruction because it was under the curse of God. That's the word, devoted to destruction. And the reason that Israel got into trouble was because Achan took of some of the things that were devoted to destruction. They were under the ban or under the curse The person or group who teaches a different gospel is under God's curse and marked out for destruction. That's a scary picture. And by extension, believing a falsehood, believing and trusting in a false gospel brings false hope and false hope leads to eternal damnation. This verse specifically addresses those who promote and teach a false gospel. They are the ones under God's curse. And James 3.1 says that teachers are accountable for what they say. And frankly, if they lead followers into hell, there's a stricter judgment waiting for them. So how do you know if a teacher is speaking the truth? How can you know if the person in front of you is, is saying what is really the case? Well, verse 10 gives us a test. A false gospel aims to please man rather than God. A false gospel aims to please man rather than God. Does, does the person preach to make people happy? Or does he do it to honor the Lord? True ministers of the gospel cut the word straight as best they can and aim to please God rather than man. And what Paul does here is he shows his own motivations in preaching in verse 10. He says, he asks two questions for effect. For do I now persuade men or God? That word persuade means to appeal to. Whose approval am I seeking, he says? God's or man's? And the second idea is very straightforward. Or do I seek to please men? And the rhetorical answer is no. Paul exists and his preaching exists to please God. To be approved as a servant of God. And he closes the verse by saying, if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's like either people or Christ will be your master as you teach or preach. And if you are loyal to one, you cannot be loyal to the other. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Matthew 6. The point is, people who massage the gospel to win approval of the audience have abandoned the true gospel. In contrast, authentic gospel ministers love their people enough to preach the hard things with a compassionate tone. And are we perfect at this? No. But before God, as my witness, I certainly try to do the second thing and not the first. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, 
said this, quote, there is always this tension in the word of God and any authentic messenger of the word knows it and lives in it. If a preacher, for example, never places you under the criticism of God's word, never tells you your sin but only smothers you with comfort, you must wonder if he's a phony. If his preaching contains only the judgment note and seldom offers comfort and encouragement, one must ask if he actually cares for God's people. If one has a high regard for both the truth of God, even if it's judgment, and for the troubles of the church, he will retain the proper tension in the word of God. He will both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. There's a tension and a great temptation to downplay certain things that are uncomfortable. Some of the things we've talked about today. I don't like talking about hell. I don't like using the word damnation. But it's right here. And, and I wouldn't love you if I didn't say it. I would actually be loving me. And I don't want any of you to be damned to hell. I don't want any of you to go there. And if we reject the true gospel, that's where we're headed. There's no hope of salvation or deliverance for sin if we change the true gospel. The responsibility on us who teach and preach is to please God and preach faithfully because of a different gospel is no gospel at all. And these teachers in Galatia really were foxes that had crept into the hen house. And as our neighbors discovered last fall, when a fox has time to run amok in the hen house, it's disastrous for the hens. It's deadly for the chickens. Spiritually speaking, we cannot tolerate a different gospel for one second because the results will be spiritually disastrous. The stakes are too high to tinker with the truth. And so, my brothers and sisters, let's heed this sobering warning. Let's place ourselves under the, the word of God and hold fast to the true gospel by the grace of Christ. Would you bow with me as we pray today? Lord, these passages are heavy. They're not easy to preach. And, and yet you've included them in the word of God for a reason. Because ultimately, it is the note of judgment and the, the sound of warning that will pull back some sinners from the edge. And when they turn away from falsehood and enter truth, they, they, they find joy and they find hope and comfort. And so I pray for us believers today that we would find comfort in the truth, that we would be strong in the grace that it's in Christ Jesus, that we would be discerning. And as we go in the coming weeks to, to understand what this word is teaching us, what the book is, is, is calling us to think and believe so that we will be better equipped to not only discern error into our own hearts, but discern error in the people around us. And that we would be a family that watches out for one another and that strengthens one another in the word. If there are any today under the sound of the gospel that have not believed, we pray that the spirit would open their eyes and change their hearts and put a heaviness on them that they cannot shake until they repent and get right with you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.